All right, we are, that is not an accident. I know we started a new book last week, but I warned you, you were going to get a week off because this is the forgotten liturgical day in the evangelical slash Baptist church calendar. It's Pentecost. <laughs> Besides, we're paying attention, right? It's all of those people out there who aren't. No, this is one of those forgotten ones. I mean, if you, if you go to a typical uh, non-denominational or Baptist church, you can pretty much guess you're going to get something at Christmas time, something at Easter time. Um, you might get something at Mother's Day or Father's Day. You ever get anything at Pentecost? <laughs> no, we just go zooming past that and pay no attention. Well, we stop. Last year we stopped, this year we are continuing on. That's why we're starting at verse 22, That, by the way. If you want to know what happened in verses 1 through 21, you have to go hunt it down on YouTube or on the website from last year. So you have to, you're, you're on your own. But as far as recap goes, um, Peter has begun his sermon. Why would Peter do such a thing? This is why this holiday, well, holiday, wow. There's a way to cheapen a, you know, the work of God and in reaction to the early church, right? Um, the reason why this commemoration, there you go, we'll go with that day, is so important is because we lose the empowerment if we lose the Holy Spirit. Your connection to God is your connection through the Spirit. Christ makes intercession, yes, but is the Holy Spirit that thing that, you know, smacking you in the back of the head, making you pay attention, that the one who actually writes the law upon your heart to points out when you know that you're wrong and when you think you're in the right spot, that's who's doing that work is the Holy Spirit. That is one of the reasons why Peter has begun the sermon. He has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. He has pointed to fulfillment. So if you read the first section of this, so verses 1 through 21, you'll see that Peter decided that the first sermon of the new Christian church should begin with the book of Joel. Because <laughs> when you think New Testament evangelism, you immediately think of a three-chapter minor prophet, don't you? I mean, isn't that the first place you would have gone to? <laughs> no. Which, by the way, I think if I've got my scheduling right, we're actually going to go through Joel sometime early next year. So, because I'm weird and have that sort of time. <laughs> It'll be fun. Peter goes there, though, because it is an explanation of the coming day of the Lord, the work that God will do in the last times. Which, by the way, We've covered this before, but it is worth bearing again. Christian, that's you. You are in the last days. Dun, dun, dun. And I don't mean like the left behind, you know, fight on Armageddon, the, you know, the field of Armageddon and the, you know, the locusts and the whole bit from Revelation. I'm not talking about that. When I say the last days, I mean, Jesus has ascended. What are you waiting for? Jesus to return. Every time in between those two events is the last days. <laughs> So it covers everything, which is why, I mean, if you ever wonder, what was your, what was your signs or what were your signs? There you go, get my subject verb agreement going here today. What were your signs? There would be wars and rumors of wars and disease and famine and yeah, <laughs> it's been a while, hasn't it? I mean, when was the last time you turned on the news and there wasn't a war or a rumor of war? I mean, too much money to be made, right? I shouldn't have said that one. <laughs> when was the last time there wasn't some sort of famine or drought or natural disaster that destroyed this crop or some country was starving to death or some state was having a natural... When was the last time you, saw, you watched the news and that wasn't in the top five stories? 
hasn't been, because this is what a world that is wrought with sin looks like. It's a reminder. When you see the everyday occurrences of evil in the world, they are supposed to be a reminder to you. This is not, oh, hurricane has destroyed yet another city on the Gulf Coast. Can't imagine that happened again. What were the odds, right? Yet here it goes. That means God has judged this pagan nation and God has judged this pagan city or God took out that beach because of what the spring breakers did last month. That's, that's the argument that gets pointed out. No, it's a reminder that people have died. Disaster has struck. Jesus is returning. That my hope is not in this world. My hope is in Christ. Another tornado found a trailer park in Kansas. Stop building trailer parks. That's not the lesson, although it might be the lesson, but the lesson is what? A disaster has occurred. The effects of sin have been seen. This is a reminder that Jesus is coming back. Country A hates country B, and they're shooting at each other again. Because you know what? As soon as country A and B are done shooting at each other, country C and D are going to be shooting at each other, and then you know E and F are going to be shooting at each other, and so on and so forth, because I can't remember my alphabet right now. <laughs> What should that remind you of? Oh no, we're all going to die. They're going to launch the nukes and we're all going to glow in the dark and they're going to hit Chicago and we're going to be irradiated. No, you should be reminded that people hate each other. Sin is real. Nations cannot live in peace because they do not have God. Jesus is coming back. This is what the work is supposed to be. This is what the work of the Holy Spirit is supposed to be reminding you of. This is why you war against sin. When the Holy Spirit prompts you, to remember that, hey, that's not where you're supposed to be. It's not supposed to be, oh, no, I've messed up again. God is mad at me. Don't you do that. <laughs> not jumpy at all today, am I? It's supposed to be a reminder that what? For this too, Christ has died, that there is coming a day when Christ will return, and this sin, this war will be a one, and the accomplishment that has been won at the cross will be realized in my life. It's supposed to be a reminder that Jesus is coming back. This is why our math equation is for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ, because you should be reminded that he is returning for his people. And as I have trusted in him, and he has empowered me by the Spirit, his people includes me. So Peter has begun. Peter has pointed to that prophetic uh, fulfillment. It is now time for us to dig into the meat of what Peter is talking about. Now, why might Peter do such a thing? Who's going to build the church? Christ will build the church. By who? The Holy Spirit. Who changes the hearts and minds of men? God and the Spirit. Who will protect his church? God, by the same means. And who will empower that church moving forward? Same thing. Ready to dive in? I'm waiting for that TV to die because that blue screen is going to kill me until it does. But I keep hoping one of these times it's just going to flip on and it's just not. So, all right. Let's go. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. All right. Let's not forget that there is a crowd here. And what does this crowd know? Let's rewind a little bit in Bible history to Luke 24. While they were walking and talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad, and one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? Let's not forget that Peter's sermon is uh, about a month and a half later. Would you forget, in six, seven weeks, would you forget that execution you attended? Would you forget that time you were hanging out with the angry mob and they demanded that the government uh, kill somebody? Yeah, you, th you think that'd be kind of a, think that'd be kind of a big deal? 
And did, and do you think that you, you know while you were hanging out a couple of days afterwards that the people who were hanging out with the dude you got killed they said he's alive and people are seeing him? Think you do you think you'd just be like ah loans crazy people? And then when you show back up a few weeks later for the next festival, those crazy guys who you thought were loons are now proclaiming the judgment of God in a language that they don't speak on the regular basis. You should be like, man, these guys are out of their minds. Let's go home. <laughs> no. There's a reason why rubbernecking is a thing on the highway. Because how many days do you see cars upside down? So what does everybody do? Can't help themselves, can they? That's kind of what the apostles are doing right now. They've been proclaiming the judgment of God in all of the languages. They've seen this you know, weird flaming tongues of fire thing, and now it's kind of like, I want to look away but I can't, and they all know who and what he's talking about. So listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. That is completely true. John 5, Jesus made the point that the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. You'll see this with the religious leaders. They, you know, every time Jesus does one of these great miracles, they're saying what? It's obvious that he's done this and we can't deny it. What's going to happen next? It's one of the reasons why they've, why they've got to ramp up their efforts to get him to get him dead before you know, he starts converting everybody because he's called Lazarus out of the tomb. Nobody can deny this anymore. There's too many witnesses that have seen him raise the dead and heal the sick and cast out demons and make food out of thin air and calm the storm and do all of these things. You can't deny it. And Peter points them to that. You know who he was. You saw what he did. So verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. They just catch an animal out there? <laughs> Am I the only one that heard the squeaking? <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, it's going to be, oh it's, oh, it's down there. I thought it, was, I thought it was from the hall where the kids went down the hallway. That's fine. <laughs> All of a sudden, it's like, what was that? You know, we've got urinals leaking. We've got TVs not working. What, what's next? You giant critters coming through the door to attack us, right? Why not? <laughs> to do what? <laughs> what could go wrong next? Knock on, knock on wood, right? There you go. All right. Notice the dual work here. Technically, if you wanted to be technical and realistic about this, who did the work of killing Jesus? Wouldn't that mean, like, if you... Not, 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 don't give me a theological answer. I mean, if you were writing the story and you were putting a history book out that they were going to read to high school students, who killed Jesus? The Romans did. The Romans did the work. They beat him. They hung him up on a cross. Who does Peter give credit to? Predetermined plan, foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So in other words, who's guilty here? <laughs> yes. Yes is guilty. Everyone is guilty. Why? Their sin, sinful work, God's plan. Always catch this with the dual work of God, that God is not shocked and that the things that are occurring in this place are not occurring simply because, you know, oh, well, you know, sometimes things just happen. There are no accidents in a universe run by God. 
There are none. 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 Okay? Romans 8. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Go back to your Old Testament, Genesis 50. Joseph talking to his brothers. Remember, Joseph's brothers are a little freaked out that, you know, now that dad's dead, there's a good chance that Joseph, with all this power and authority, might have a grudge against us, you know, for that whole, you know, throwing him in a pit and selling him to the Midians thing. He might be a little angry. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Jesus gives you a good hinge verse as he explains it in John 17. While I was with them, this is his prayer in the upper room, I I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them that not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So, Let's go back to our wars and rumors of wars and famines and plagues and pestilence and all of that. Hurricane comes and destroys. This is, this is one of those vivid examples because I actually had a, um, a chapel speaker when I was a seminary student from New Orleans come in um, 2006, right after Katrina, and talk about this a little bit. And it's just one of those things that sticks with me. Because let's be honest, was there a good evangelical church that didn't blame Hurricane Katrina on the wicked evilness of New Orleans? <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. If there was a massive earthquake that destroyed Las Vegas, what would be your first thought? What would, I mean, what would be your first thought? Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. If anybody had it coming, it was going to be those guys. And a lot of people did that with New Orleans. And he had a simple question. If the hurricane was judgment from God, why are all the casinos and bars open and my church is still closed? If it was judgment on them, why are they open, they're in business, they're making money, and I can barely find my people because they can't go home? And the reason being is, is it judgment? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Definitely, maybe. How about that? You have to figure out what's going on in your life. Christian, aided by who? Aided by the Holy Spirit. Is God judging sin in real time? Yeah. Will God kill people for their sin in judgment? Yes, we got a, you know, pages of examples. Does God, use, does God use discipline to shake the sinner so that they will open their eyes and respond? Yes. Does God use discipline for his people because they are not listening and they need to be shaken so they will recognize the sin that they have fallen in? Yes. Does God take his people home and redeem them? And is that a mercy? Yes. Now, can all of those things be accomplished at the same time? Yes. Can they be accomplished in the same disaster? Yes. In other words, God is capable of chewing gum and walking down the street at the same time. We don't like that. Because, it, let's, be, let's be honest, isn't it more fun and a little bit easier when things are just clean cut and, all right, you bombed Vegas, good deal. But that was a trailer park full of nice people. No, no, no. We've attacked that from our perspective and not from God's. Anytime you try to understand God and you start with you, you're doomed. Anytime you try to understand the work of God and you start with you, you're doubly doomed. What is God accomplishing? He is building up his kingdom. He is strengthening and building his people for their good and for his glory. What's good for you? I don't know all the time. Do you always like what's good for you? No. See, I get a good example of this every single week. If left to my own devices, my diet will consist of unsupervised toddler on a rampage. 
and I know this about myself, like Cameron and I had this argument for years and she didn't believe me with all of her child development stuff because Cameron will, like for fun and enjoyment, do things like cook broccoli. And I can't understand this. And she'll cook it and, and, and enjoy it. It's like, no, there's a sweetness. And I'm like, sweetness? It's bitter and awful and I'd rather go make out with a dog than eat that. <laughs> and she just kind of looks at me. We taste differently. The way that those vegetables taste are different to her than they are to me. I eat vegetables because I'm an adult and they're good for me. I don't enjoy them at all. So every day for lunch, I'll have peas or green beans, and I try to swallow them down as quickly as possible and then try to enjoy the rest of my meal. Why? Because they're good for me. I don't like it. I'm sure you can remember a teacher that you had in school or an argument, well, discussion, or something along those lines that you had with a parent that was very unpleasant, but it was good for you. Welcome to the world run by God. The discipline of the Lord is for your good and for his glory. It chastens you, it encourages you, it educates you, and it opens your eyes to the things of this world and the realities that are here, because you need that. Because when left to your own devices and left to my own devices and our own thought processes, there be nothing but trouble. And God in his infinite love and wisdom does not allow that. That is why Peter is pointing to a dual work here. What was needed to get those people to hate Christ and want him killed? What did God have to do? Nothing. Is God sitting there going, they're going to kill him. Oh my goodness, they're really going to kill him. Okay, guys, um, go get me a couple of angels. We've got we to gotta think this through. All right, they're going to kill him. So when they kill him, how do, we, how do we make this turn out right? Like, how do we make this good? Would you, would you, would you follow that? <laughs> Be like, I got an idea. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, no, this, it's ridiculous. You're looking at me like, please stop this analogy. It makes me uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable because you know who, does that, you know who that makes God seem like? Us. And I've always told you, God is ununderstandable by us, and that is a good thing. Because if we could make sense of who God is and how he functions on our daily basis, then we would be God. And you don't want to be in a universe run by me. And no offense, I don't want to be in a universe run by you. I want to be in a universe run by God. And so I don't understand it, and I don't see it, but I am called to trust it because he is building a kingdom, and his promises are good, and I can see. That's what you get all that history stuff for. You know, the stuff we don't like reading? You get all that because you can see the fulfillment of his work. You can see the accomplishment of his promises. And you can know that if he can fulfill those works and those promises with those people over there, and people are pretty much people because there's not a whole lot new under the sun here, then the work that God is doing hasn't changed. And it hasn't been lost. And it hasn't been forgotten. And I can rest in that. And I can see the iniquity around me and I can see the brokenness and know that God is at work and he is building and strengthening his people for his kingdom. So because of that, verse 24, but God excuse me, raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why? Why was that impossible? Ezekiel chapter 18. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for his son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. It's kind of straightforward. Why do you die? <laughs> Hamster polka. All right, I'm in. <laughs> 
No, you're fine. <laughs> Life happens. What? Why has every human that has ever lived, why is the death rate 100%? Why does no one survive life? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin are death. Impossible to be held by its power. What claim does death have on Christ? None. He doesn't die for his sin. He dies for your sin. That's the other reason the resurrection is so important. Is he still dead? No. Christian, are you dead? And the answer is no. You're not. Because even though this mortal breaks down and this flesh decays, my hope is in Christ. My hope is that as he has been resurrected, that his people will be resurrected, that the kingdom will be set good. Hebrews 9. He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Eternal inheritance, unending, unceasing, an eternity with Christ, an eternity with God. Always remember, what is your Bible doing? What was lost in the garden? Communion, fellowship with God in a good creation. Christian, while you have fellowship with God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is your creation that you abide in good? No, it's that whole wars and rumors of wars and plague and pestilence and all that good stuff, right? What's one of the things you're hoping for? This is what we mean when we say we're longing for a day when sin is undone. Not that sin is just like put away somewhere where I don't have to deal with it anymore. Where it is undone. A new heavens and a new earth. A holy city indwelt by God's people because it is good. It is no longer killing them. There is a tree of life and a river flowing from the throne. This imagery is put in there because this is a city run, ruled, and inhabited by a righteous God and a righteous people. In other words, what was lost in the garden, corrupted by our sin, is set right again by the work of Christ. It is good, and it is uplifted, and it is held together because of his goodness. And my voice does not want to cooperate today. <sighs> I keep warning you guys, we're on borrowed time, because I noticed it used to be I could talk on Sunday, and then like by Monday afternoon my voice would even out. And then I could talk again on Wednesday, and by Thursday afternoon, Friday morning, my voice would even out. Now it's I talk on Sunday, and it's Tuesday when it starts evening out. And when we talk on Wednesday, it's Friday when it starts evening out. So, you know, figure at this current rate, I got about 15 more years, and then I'm just going to be up here going. So, we'll, you know, we'll be doing sermons from, like, third base co coaching box. <laughs> So, you've been warned. We'll start working on the hand signals now, okay? <laughs> but there'll be a Sunday. I'll be up here. It looks like I'll be doing the Macarena, you know? <laughs> All right. So, with this in mind, though, with that understanding, Peter then begins another long quote. He's going to quote from Psalm 16, and he's going to quote specifically from 8 through 11. So, for, uh, verse 25. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence... For he is at the right hand at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Now, question Who is David talking about in Psalm sixteen? Let's go to the verse before the one that he quotes, verse sixteen seven. 
I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. So David is talking about God and the work that God has done for who? For him. Now, this is going to become important for what Peter does later. What is David? I will take multiple answers. (laughs) So what is David's job description in Israel? He's king. Now, is David a king? Yes. Is David the king? No. So David has a dual job. This is something we're very big on, something we're going to keep pointing out. David is king of Israel. He is meant to rule, but he is also meant to point forward. David can't rescue the kingdom. Can David defeat and kill some Philistines? Yes, he's very, and he's very good at it. Can David secure the borders? Well, pretty well. Can David promise security eternally to that kingdom? No. Can David ensure that the people in whose borders he has secured, that they are good and righteous? No, he can't do that. Can he even encourage them in that most of the time? The answer is no, not really. This is a terrible job. So David is king of Israel, but he is also a picture of who the good and righteous final king of Israel is supposed to be. So remember that. So Peter is here, guided by the Holy Spirit, is going to point this to who? To David? No. He's going to point this to Christ. Go back to the road to Emmaus that we looked at earlier. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus does for those guys on the road to Emmaus what he warned the religious leaders about in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it is those that testify to him. The scripture was not about you finding a message. The scripture was about pointing you to Christ, who he is and what he will do. So let's continue in 27. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Oh, I should have taken more time here. Um, Don't panic about that. In Greek language, everybody goes to Hades, okay? It is a, oh, man. I was a weird kid. You're shocked by that, I'm certain. So I went through this weird phase in like the 8th, 7th, 8th grade where I had this bizarre desire to learn about Greek mythology. (laughs) Don't ask me why. I had no idea. So... I understand that sometimes I know about it and other people don't pay attention because you read it like one time in high school and then you didn't care anymore. So in Greek mythology, um, Hades is in charge of the underworld. Everybody dies. Everybody goes to where Hades is. He's brother of Zeus and Poseidon. It's a weird family tree. Don't try to explain it. Um, Good, bad, and ugly. There are just different compartments and divisions in the underworld. But everybody goes to Hades. So when you read, if you read an NASB or another really literal translation, they will do this. They do not translate the word Hades. They transliterate it, which means not to provide a translation of the word, but just to, to, to um, to just anglicize it. So... A case in point would be, we don't translate the word apostle. The Greek word for apostle is apostolos. That's not a translation, that's a transliteration. We took the Greek word and made it sound like it was English. Make sense? Translation would be that you're a messenger or one who has been sent or a delegate. That would be an actual translation. Apostle is a transliteration. Same thing here. So if you're ever reading a Bible that transliterates Hades like this, stop yourself whenever you see it and just read the word grave. Okay, because that's the understanding that a Greek thinker and a Greek speaker would have had is that every time you heard the word Hades, you would have automatically assumed hole in the ground, tombstone, the whole bit. Okay, 
Well, that's how we think about it. That's how they would have thought about it as a place of the dead, but that's how you should think about it. So, you will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Where's David's hope? It's not in himself, and it's not in his nation, and it's not in the security that he has brought to Israel. It's in God. It's in a hope beyond the place that he's dwelling in now. It is a hope beyond this world because David, of all people, this is why I always love the bad examples of Scripture because they're so instructive, of all people to understand the mercy and grace of God, do you think David would be near the top of the list in the Old Testament? I mean, that was one of the good kings. I mean, just, just process this for a second. Every king of Israel and Judah, went because the kingdoms later split, so some 50, 60 kings, give or take. Every single one of them is going to be compared either favorably or unfavorably to David. <laughs> David is your high water mark. Would you let David date your daughter? <laughs> I mean, just think this one through for a second. <laughs> I mean, just think this one through. I mean, your daughter comes home, and she's got this guy, and you know, he's got a really good job, and it pays well, and he can protect me and all of that. He's got a little bit of a wandering eye, maybe a little bit of a wandering hand. You know, he's, he's a little bloodthirsty. He's got a, he's got a temper. <laughs> maybe he got a little bit of a thief in him. You know, he's willing to lie at church. <laughs> this is a good guy, right? Are you, are you thrilled, or are you calling every four minutes on that date? <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) hop in, we're going with. (laughs) Like, what could possibly go wrong? I point that out because he's the high watermark. Why? Because he's amazing? No, because he recognizes that he's not. And when he recognizes that he's not and that he fails, his hope is in God and in the work that God will accomplish. Christian, yours is supposed to be in the same place. 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice the connection. What's David's comfort? You have made, me known, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Based on what? The fact that you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The fact that you will redeem and there is a hope beyond me. Christian, what's supposed to be your comfort? Comfort one another with these words. That Christ is coming back. Why is that a comfort? Because I just looked at the world and it hates me. I just looked at the weather, and it despises me. I looked at the ground when I was out west, and it tried to swallow me whole. I mean, I went walking in January in in Illinois. What could go wrong, right? I mean, do you go for like three-mile walks outside in January? Why not? Because the wind is trying to rip your skin off, and you're trying to make sure you'll have a nose when you get home, right? You've been outside for a minute, and all of a sudden it's like, why is my face not work? Because it's frozen. This is is not a good thing. The world hates me and it's trying to kill me. Jesus is coming back. My hope is not here. My strength is not here. My trust is not here. It is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, verse 29, regarding a patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Yes, yes he did, because who survives life? Nobody. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, that is true. That's the Davidic covenant there in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Psalm 89 makes the same point. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne to all generations. So because of that, He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to the grave, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. In other words, where is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God found? They're found in Christ. Now stop. What are the promises? Seed of the woman. Who will do what? Crush the serpent and his offspring. A blessing to the whole world. A prophet who knows God face to face and explains him and does the mighty acts and works of God. A king to rule for how long? Eternity. We need a sacrifice, a covering so that we may live. What are all of those things supposed to be pointing to? Are they supposed to be pointing to us? Are they supposed to be pointing us to something in this place? I mean, this is the breakdown that Israel has. I mean, if you, ever, if you want to understand your interactions between Jesus and the crowds and Jesus and the religious leaders, just understand that Jesus is starting with God and explaining, and the people are starting with themselves and trying to understand. So what does that conversation start looking like? You're speaking this way, and they're hearing that way, and you're understanding, and they're going this way. And that's how you end up with dumb statements like, you must be born again from above. Can a man be born again after he is old? I mean, can he, can he, can he crawl back into a womb and be born a second time? Be honest. If you're in that conversation, aren't you just going, that, that's, that's the understanding you just, that's what you got? Oh, okay, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> Why? Because he can't think beyond what? can't think beyond himself and the things that are around him. That's why Jesus can create food out of thin air, feeding the crowds and the multitudes. Who creates things out of nothing? Big fancy Latin term in theology is ex nihilo, out of nothing. That is where creation comes from. Who does that? Pick the, where in the Bible is the book and chapter that tells you that there is creation from nothing? I'll wait. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What is Jesus creating the food from? It's just there. We got a fish and we divided it. Just keep. After a while, we should run out of fish, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be running out of bread here? And yet, what are, we, what are we doing here? The crowd's reaction is not to see this as the fulfillment of God, not to see this as the divine power. It's to see it as what? Hey, this guy can feed an entire army. He can overthrow the Romans. Let's go. We'll never starve to death again. So Jesus tells him, you came because you ate and you were full. You just want another meal. We want another show. Do it again. Do it again. Dance. Yay. Do a trick. That's humanity. Why? Because what do we see? We see ourselves and the things that we want and the things that we love. Again, what's the point? God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. That's what we had. Who destroyed that? We did. 
us. And before you get all high and mighty, because that's the temptation, Adam and Eve, you had one job. You know what you would have done if you had that one job? You'd be like, ooh, that fruit looks really good. And it's good to make us wise? Okay. And every husband would have been standing there going, it looks kind of yummy and I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, I'll have some too. Yeah, what could go wrong? And the reason I know that's the case is because the Israelites saw the parting of the Red Sea and then they complained. And they got manna from heaven and they complained. And they saw the thunder and the lightning and the shaking of the mountain and God descending from on high and they complained some more. And Peter walked on water and stood there and went, and then started to sink. And they saw dead people get out of coffins and Lazarus come out of the tomb and they didn't have a clue. Because we get stuck in ourselves, we can't see the forest for the trees because we don't understand what's going on. Isaiah 53, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. That's the how. What does the how produce? It produces a Holy Spirit-empowered people capable of seeing and understanding the world around them as it really is from the perspective and understanding of God. That's what's different. That's why you're different. Do you ever try to understand yourself before you were saved? Do you ever have that conversation be like, what was I thinking? And you can't make sense of it? <laughs> you know why? Because you literally can't make sense of it. You don't think the same way. That's why you look at the world and go, how do you do that? And like, how do you sleep at night? How can you look at yourself in the mirror? How can you think this is a good idea? You're not thinking in the same way. You're talking this way, they're hearing that way. And it's just... Now I'm doing some weird cartoon kung fu moves. <laughs> Sorry. I can be El Kabong. I just need a guitar. <laughs> Ooh, hang on. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> they can't understand. They can't make sense of it. Why not? Because they don't think like that. You can't make sense of it. Because you don't think like that. So what do you do? Trust in Christ. Proclaim the gospel in no that in order for them to understand, they have to be changed. And in order for them to hear you, they have to be changed. Why do you think Peter is doing what he's doing? He's pointing to Scripture. He's proclaiming who Christ is based on the promises of God and what that will mean to them based on the work of the Holy Spirit. Christian, nothing has changed. Nothing. This is why you can't logic them in. You can't explain it to them so that they will get in. You have to change the heart. And what changes the hearts and minds of men is God through the Spirit. End of discussion. This is why you have to live rested on that power. Because if you start forgetting that in your life, you start thinking that it is your strength, it is your wisdom, it is your good idea, then you will start thinking that the way that they will get in is something that you will do. By remembering who you are and why you stand firm each and every day, you will remember how you interact and overcome in this world. So Peter finishes up. Therefore... Having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. In other words, the reason Peter's talking to them is because of everything that God has done. According to his promises, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. dwells. 2 Peter 3. Peter's entire life from Pentecost forward was about what? The fulfillment of the work that God has promised, empowered by the spirit that God has given. 
Why is this the case? For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's quoting Psalm um, 110 there. Uh, If you want to go dig up Palm Sunday, we talked about Psalm 110. Have fun with that. What's going on here? Mark 12. Regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. (laughs) I love Jesus makes such a simple little argument off of verb tense. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what's his point here with Psalm 110? That Christ is raised, seated at the right hand of the Father, so there's nothing that has been lost. Therefore, so here's your point, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Do you know what an archetype is? It's a storytelling concept. We used to talk about it in literature class. Now we talk about it with movies. (laughs) So, like, if you ever watch a sitcom... Every husband is a blithering idiot who doesn't want to get off the couch, right? That's an archetype. We take a... We, we, he's not doing anything unique in that TV show. He's playing a role. His children are playing a role. There's always the smart kid. There's always the dumb kid. There's always, there's always the promiscuous kid. You've seen this show, right? <laughs> Pick one. You know one of the archetypes that we've had in literature and film for a really long time? This concept of a one. We make movies about it. Old westerns. The bad guys come into town. Who's going to defeat them? There's one gunslinger that's fast enough to do it, right? The whole sheriff, the sheriff's useless, the marshal's useless, the innkeeper's useless, but there's that one guy who's going to come in here and clean this place up. Isn't this every Clint Eastwood western and cop movie? Isn't this what all the Dirty Harry movies are? (laughs) I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's it's everywhere. You have a concept of a savior. Why? Because literary artists, writers, screenwriters, whatever, understand that there is a human understanding that we need help, that we need someone from the outside to conquer an enemy that we cannot defeat. Why might they know that? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Because that's what Christ is going to accomplish. Because Christ is the one. He is the Christ, he is the Lord, he is the Savior, and humanity knows it. Because we know we are not good and we know that we cannot overcome. But because we are unwilling to submit to what God has made as a good plan, we try to comfort ourselves by telling stories about someone else who can save this place, or someone else who will redeem that people. All the while trying to comfort ourselves and trying to soothe the anger of the heart and the sin that so easily just destroys and corrupts us. What's the real cure? That Christ has come, that he has changed his people, and that by the power of the Spirit, they are redeemed and strengthened to walk in this world. This is what Peter pointed them to. It's not anything else. It's Jesus. It's not any other work. It's the accomplishment of Christ. It's not any other hope or teaching or understanding. 
He is the ruler for God's people. He is the prophet who explains. He is the sacrifice for sins. He is the one who redeems and brings his people together. This has always been the point, and it will always be the point. The thing you have to decide is, do you follow it? And you're listening to me ramble on for this length of time, so you got to have some encouragement, right? Why are you doing that, though? Because there is a spirit at work proclaiming to you and strengthening you and encouraging you. Recognize that it is not encouraging you to be the best you. It is encouraging you to be like Christ. It is not encouraging you to be wiser than the enemy or to try to convince them of something. It is encouraging you to proclaim Christ and him crucified, to renew your heart and mind and to trust that it is God who overcomes because he is the one who has always overcome and he is the only one capable of overcoming. So the world hates me. Christ is coming back. They disagree with us. They won't listen. Christ is coming back. Proclaim the truth anyway. But disaster seems to strike and life doesn't go well. My hope is in Christ. My spurring by the Spirit is in Christ. And the life that I live, I live because of who he is and what he has done. Let's pray.